Michael Vonnen. Welcome to the Tolkien Lore Channel. I'm the Tolkien Geek, and in this video we're going to take our leave of Middle-earth for a little bit, and we're going to talk about Beowulf, specifically Tolkien's lecture or essay, Beowulf, the Monsters and the Critics. This is a really important essay because Tolkien is maybe almost single-handedly responsible for bringing a little extra love and attention to Beowulf beyond just it's English literature and therefore we have to study it. Um, and because of that, and because of his influence on the profession in terms of Beowulf, this one essay where he really gets into a lot of his thought on the poem of Beowulf is very much worth considering. And if you've never read Beowulf or, you know, know anything about it, there will be spoilers. I will be talking about the plot. Can't really help it. So with that warning, let's get going. The basic plot of Beowulf is you have this hero character, Beowulf, who is supernaturally powerful and strong who comes to a kingdom who whose king is very much in a bad way he's got a hall that he recently built but he can't use it because this really evil thing called Grindel keeps coming every night and slaughtering everybody in the hall and so he can't use the hall that he just built Beowulf shows up and basically says I'll kill this thing I'm awesome I'm really strong I'll just murder it and of course, there's some play back and forth between Beowulf and some of the members of uh, the, the court of the king, whose name is Hygelac, or Hygelac, I really don't know how to pronounce it, pardon my knowledge of, or lack of knowledge of Old English. Um, but anyway, there's some back and forth where the guy's trying to tear him down and Beowulf snow, I'm awesome, I'm awesome. Uh, and it goes back and forth for a while. Grendel, of course, does show up that night. Beowulf basically grabs his arm wrestles with him and he doesn't kill him but when Grendel tries to escape he rips his arm off Grendel goes home bleeds to death and dies then of course Grendel's mother gets really mad because monsters have mothers and then she wants to do basically the same thing she starts causing the same kind of havoc Beowulf actually goes to the grotto where she lives dives into the water wrestles with her, finds a giant sword, and by giant sword, I mean sword forged by giants, like literally legit huge, and takes that and kills Grendel's mother, which being the super strong person that he is, he can do that with a giant sword. So then you get, you know, the triumphant return. He comes back. Everybody thought he was dead because he dove into the water and didn't come back initially. He gets, you know, a, a hero's welcome. There's, you know, songs sung in his honor and things like that. He takes his leave, goes back to his own home country, and then it kind of shifts to the end of his life where at, it doesn't really even really start out a whole lot with him. The main plot point that gets the second half going is this guy goes into a dragon's lair, steals a cup, comes out, and the dragon gets all mad, starts laying waste to Beowulf's kingdom. Beowulf decides, well, I've got to go stop it, and he eventually kills the dragon, but himself is killed. So that's basically the end of the story. As a plot, it's kind of thin, not really a whole lot going on. I mean, you could say that about a lot of stories if you really dumb it down that much. And that's kind of Tolkien's point. He actually makes that point in the lecture on uh, the monsters and the critics. He basically says, you know, so many critics say that the the story is just really thin. There's not much to it. And he says, but if you dumb it down to the extent that they dumb the story down to say that it's thin, 
any story dumbed down that much looks like a really thin, boring plot. I mean, there's not much to it. Tolkien, of course, also takes issue with another theme that was prevalent in the literature at the time, which is basically th this idea that the monsters are placed in the middle, even though they're totally unimportant, whereas there's all this important stuff around the edges, and the important stuff to everybody else were, were the stories of other, you know, Danish or Norse kings and their interplay throughout history, because a lot of these people actually are or represent real historical figures and real historical events. And so historians actually use Beowulf almost more than the, the literary profession does because there's so much history in Beowulf that we really don't have any other sources for. So there's a lot of criticisms coming in, and that's why Tolkien writes this essay, uh, which originally was a lecture, but it, you, know, you can now find it in essay form. So I'm going to talk about, now that I've kind of given you a background on the story, a little bit of Tolkien's points on the monsters and then <clears throat> a few other points that he makes about the poem as a whole in terms of its structure and why it's kind of shaped the way it is and what, what lessons he takes from that. So let's get to that part. Suitably enough, of course, we're going to start with the monsters because the lecture is the monsters and the critics. Tolkien takes issue with all the professionals who look at the monsters and go, what are they doing here? That's stupid. You know, they're just monsters. Tolkien points out that in the mythology of the people that this story belonged to, and as a side note, I should point out for those not familiar, Beowulf itself, as we have it, is written by a Christian, uh, possibly monk. Uh, I don't remember exactly who the person was. But nevertheless, a Christian, not a pagan, even though it's a pagan story. The Christian, whoever it was that did the writing, took pagan stories that were existing, reworked them for his own purpose. Uh, so he's taking pagan material, putting a little bit of a Christian, um, I don't want to say veneer on it because he doesn't change the characters to be Christians, but he has a little bit of his own commentary in it that, that puts a little bit of his own spin. So... You're looking at it from this perspective of somebody who's looking back at all these older stories, and that's you know a lot of where that comes from is the criticism against the monsters is there's all this other really important stuff from a pagan standpoint, all these heroes and things that they did. Well, so Tolkien basically points out, no, the monsters are there for a reason. Uh, in the mythology of the people that these stories belong to, you very rarely get dragons, actually. I mean, there's, uh, he makes a comment about one of the critics who talks about, you know, why are there so many dragons? And he says, there's really not that many dragons. There's hardly any dragons in Norse mythology, and there's really only two that are particularly famous. There's Fafnir, who gets killed by Sigurd, and then there's Beowulf's dragon. And then there's a few others, but not many. Uh, you just really don't find that many. And he said the reason for that it partially, at least, is the fact that in the mythology of the people, especially the Norse, uh, you've got you know the Norse gods, Odin and Thor and all these others, and you've got on the opposing side, you've got the monsters. And he says, unlike Greek mythology, where there's really no hard delineation between, say, the Olympiad and the Titans and all the other assorted creatures that inhabit Greek mythology and you can't really say which ones are on whose side. It's just whoever's got the power and whoever, you know. Unlike that, 
in Norse mythology, it's the gods against the monsters, and the gods are recru recruiting humans to fight against the monsters with them. And he says, secondarily, the main theme behind all of this is the gods know they're going to lose, but they're still fighting anyway. And he says one of the main elements of this that, that makes it important in, in the mythology is the fact that you've got this idea of you know courage and valor as a thing good in itself, even or especially in the face of certain defeat. And he's basically saying because of all that, the monsters really represent something very, very specific and very, very important in the story. And that namely is the fact that humans are in a beleaguered state. You know, humans are basically face to face and at odds with overwhelming opposition. They can't win, you know, from the point of view of the Norse mythology. And he says the Christian author who takes all of these stories and puts them together in his own way uses that same veneer, that same backdrop, and he basically says, Yes, that element of the Norse culture is actually very good. It's, it's you know, a, a worthy thing to be courage in the face of certain temporal defeat. Because from the Christian point of view, of course, the author is looking at a final victory beyond the inevitable defeat, which is, you know, the, the Christian victory. And Tolkien is basically pointing out, he's taking this element of a Norse mythology, which is you know, in its own way, very important to the Norse culture. And he's taking it into a Christian context and basically saying it's still valuable in a different way. And he also, of course, ties in the fact that, unlike in the Norse mythology, Beowulf, uh, the poem in the hands of the Christian author, becomes a little bit of a commentary on the monsters themselves because it says that Grendel and the other monsters are essentially descendants of Cain meaning, of course, Cain, the brother of Abel, who kills Abel and is, you know, the first murderer in the world, according to Judeo-Christian uh, Judeo uh, stories. So he's, the, the author of Beowulf is taking Norse mythology, take, taking it into a Christian context and basically saying, even though, you know, these guys were wrong in their own ways, they had something going that was right. And they were just not as right as they, they, they were more right than they realized and yet also wrong because of the fact that they didn't understand it. And so Tolkien's main point about the monsters is that they really represent the overwhelming odds that humans have to face. It's not just, oh, let's throw in a monster to be cool. You know, it's not just for effect or anything like that. They actually add something substantive to the story if you're looking for the right part of the story to understand it. So, that's basically Tolkien's point about the monsters. Now let's look at his, his take on the structure of the poem and why that also informs how we ought to interpret it and why it makes it more than just a flat narrative that so many people think it is. So Tolkien talks about the structure of the poem as basically being in two parts. As I mentioned earlier, the story is basically Beowulf shows up, Beowulf kills Grendel, Beowulf kills Grendel's mother, Beowulf becomes king of his own kingdom, kills a dragon, and dies. Uh, now, of course, that leaves out a huge middle chunk of Beowulf's life. What happens between killing Grendel's mother and him becoming, you know, uh, the aged king we see at the end of the poem? 
a lot of things happened to Beowulf and his kingdom in that time. And Tolkien makes the point here that if you try to make it look like just a narrative, yeah, it doesn't really work. But he says it's really not just a straight narrative. It's actually an opposition. You've got Beowulf on the one hand at the height of his power, his youth, where he, you know, comes into his own as a hero. And then you've got Beowulf in his last days as an old king, still doing what he can to defend his kingdom, but, you know, at the twilight of, you know, his, his reign and his life. So he points out the fact that, you know, there's no real connection between the two except for the fact that they have this opposition that highlights, you know, the rise and fall. And that goes back to the whole connection of being a story about uh, kind of the, I don't want to say futility, that seems a little extreme, but more or less the futility of, you know, trying to succeed and be valorous in the Norse mythology. Basically, the idea is no matter what you do, no matter how impressive your achievements, you're going to die. And in this particular case, you're going to die at the hand of a monster, which is basically a representation of evil. You know, evil's going to win. Uh, the the way Tolkien describes this is basically he says that the poem was really best seen as kind of an elegy. It's saying that, you know, the, the old Norse way of looking at life is fundamentally kind of sad, but it's, it's also a way of thinking about the world that's kind of dying out because at that point Christianity was spreading throughout Northern Europe and was, you know, the old pagan ideas and stories were kind of dying away at this point. Uh, and we really don't have a whole lot older than Beowulf. We're, we're missing a lot of really old source material. And so a lot of what we do know about pagan stories and whatnot, we only really get through Beowulf. And Tolkien's theory is basically at the time that this was written, it was already fading into history. And so in a certain sense, the author is kind of giving a, a funeral elegy, an elegiac poem to Beowulf and Norse mythology basically saying there was something noble here. There, there was something that was good and valuable and something that we should take note of. It's dying out, and in a certain sense it should, but there is something about it that we should still keep and remember. And, of course, from the Christian perspective of the author, remember in specifically a Christian context, but nevertheless, he's basically pointing out this is something that, you know, needs to survive and it's it has its importance and we ought to remember it. And Tolkien goes to great lengths to show that if you really pay attention to what the author is doing throughout Beowulf, you can actually see a lot of what he's doing is trying to, you know, show the value of the old ways of thinking just in a different light. And so anyway, the main the main idea here is that the the poles of the story, since it's not really just a continuous narrative, the two poles of the story serve to highlight the fact that, you know, this, you know, this way of, of thinking and the, the culture is, in a sense, dying out. And which also, of course, represents the fact that that's the way that that culture thought of life. I mean, you, you fight and you die. And so, I mean, it fits both ways. The way it's done highlights both of those elements. So that's Tolkien's take on Beowulf. There's a lot more in the lecture itself. I highly recommend you read it if you have any interest in Beowulf as a story. I will also mention 
for those of you who may or may not have caught my reference earlier to the fact that the, the dragon got mad because somebody went in and stole a cup, that of course was deliberately very, very overtly lifted and put into The Hobbit, which by Tolkien. Tolkien very much lifted that little element, put it into The Hobbit where Bilbo goes into Smaug's lair, finds the cup and takes it, and that's why Smaug, Smaug blows his top. So that is interesting on its own level, but I also wanted to just basically point out, if you have any interest in Beowulf at all, in English literature, anything like that, then Tolkien is very much worth reading on the topic. Like many of his lectures and essays, it's not always the most fun reading because his lecture style, and if you actually read, there are people who complain that his lecture style was just very, very dull. Uh, and so his, his essays that are based on his lectures are also a little bit slow and you have to kind of slog through it. But if you're doing English literature in college or something like that, you've got to study Beowulf. Can't hurt to try and pick up Tolkien and find out you know, if you can pick up some additional insights. So that's Beowulf. Enjoy that video. Hope you learned a little bit about Beowulf. Uh, it's a funny thing because most people don't even know the second half of Beowulf exists. They don't know much about the dragon. They know all about the Grindel half. Uh, I mean, and that's been made into, you know, movies and whatnot, but nobody knows about the dragon, which is funny because, again, Tolkien lifted that one little scene and put it directly into The Hobbit. But if you enjoyed that, or especially if you actually do manage to make use of some of the information that Tolkien has in a college course, hey, give me a like. Uh, and please subscribe to the channel if you want to learn more about Tolkien, uh, both Middle-earth and non-Middle-earth related topics. I'm going to cover pretty much anything about Tolkien on this channel. So uh, you can either subscribe to the channel or you can follow me at Twitter at JRRTLore. And until next time, I'm the Tolkien Geek signing out for the Tolkien Lore channel. Namadier.